0: Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan and relevant. We go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Need to Know podcast. Aaron Jones here of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Happy to do another episode. And this time we're going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine, specifically the relationship here with Russia and Ukraine and U.S. involvement, possibly what it means for the West. And to discuss, we have uh, an old friend of ours who is now the acting Kennan Institute director at the Wilson Center, Will Pomrans. Will, welcome back. Glad to be here. And we also have uh, from a Ken- the Kennan Institute as a scholar, Nigel Gould Davies. He is a senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in the united kingdom nigel welcome to the need to know podcast thank you very much delighted to be here so this seems like you know the the poor ukrainians they've been in the u.s news an awful lot over the last several years uh they probably don't want to be uh but ukraine seems to be at the the point of the spear Uh, and we see this the last few months and talk of invasion from russia talk about Uh, you know, cyber tricks. What is going on and what is the potential for actually seeing conflict in Ukraine yet again? Will, I want to start with you and get your take on this. I think the potential is
1: quite real. Uh, It all depends on what is in Vladimir Putin's mind, but he has arrayed a a large uh, force on the Ukrainian border, uh, over one hundred thousand troops. Uh, he has threatened Ukraine before. Uh, he wants certain security guarantees uh, that are not Ukraine's to give, but are NATO's to give. NATO's to give. So the possibility of something going uh, awry in Ukraine is great, and I think we have to monitor the situation very carefully because there is really only one decider in this conflict, and that is Vladimir Putin.
0: Well, when you talk about trying to get in the mind of Vladimir Putin, that really, that's something that, that Western observers have been trying to get rich off of for many years. Uh, Nigel, what do you think on, how do we know what Vladimir Putin wants? Uh, we've seen this over the last several years. Ukraine is part of Putin's foreign policy. So what is the next move? Yes, the, the, the problem is even
2: more serious than that. It's not only that we need to try to get into his mind because he really is the decider here and certainly the diplomats that have been doing his bidding in recent weeks uh, to be honest, have no real idea what his intentions will prove to be. But at the same time, Putin is someone who doesn't want people to get into his mind. He uh, seeks to behave in ways that are unpredictable and throw adversaries as he sees them uh, off balance. One of the disquieting aspects of the current situation, which I think makes it exceptionally difficult to predict, is that he is behaving in ways already that are different from those that he has uh, uh, done in the past. Uh, On the specific matter of the use of force, until now, when Putin has ordered forces, either into, into Georgia in 2008 or then into Syria and into Ukraine for the first time in 2014, it has been done very quickly uh, without any kind of uh, signaling uh, to create uh, rapid changes in the realities on the ground, fate accompli, to which others have to respond. His approach this time has been quite different. It's been a slow, deliberate exercise in coercive diplomacy, very visibly creating very significant force with the clear uh, potential to be uh, used and then uh, creating a a, a diplomacy or the appearance of a a series of diplomatic demands uh, around that. Now, we had a brief dress rehearsal of this on a smaller scale back in late March and April of last year, but uh, we've not seen uh, this exercise in coercive diplomacy done before. So there is a sense that Putin's mind is, as all minds ultimately, uh, change uh, over time. They're not constant, uh, and that he is doing new things and maybe animated by a different and, frankly, riskier calculus uh, than he has before in using force. All of these uh, elements create, I think, a very dangerous situation.
0: When we think about Putin using force, and obviously the first thing that comes to mind is the invasion of Crimea, which this was in 2014, am I correct? So the use of force there certainly got some consternation from the West, but the West was not ready to uh, jump in. Certainly, America was not about to expend American lives in Ukraine for the defense of Crimea. Is it going to be different this time around if there is some further invasion? Will? I don't think that
1: President Biden is intending to put troops into Russia's backyard and to defend Ukraine after an all out invasion, essentially, invasion of Ukraine. So President Biden has been pretty explicit saying that we're not going to put troops on the ground. And I don't think President Biden is interested in an armed conflict in Ukraine. Um, especially after all his after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, he's not looking to to send American troops abroad in the near future. So I don't think that uh, sending American forces to Ukraine is in the cards. What President Biden has proposed is a is a an attempt, or at least a threat, of a variety, variety of sanctions, and export controls, and other means by which to answer any sort of invasion from Ro- the Russian Federation. So such a response would have to be well-coordinated with our European allies to have an impact. Uh, there's always already discussion, discussions that the allies are not in full agreement as to the scope of these sanctions. So that is the card that Biden will play. Um, it just depends on how extensive these sanctions are and whether we receive the appropriate uh, agreement with our allies to act in concert against Russia.
0: Well, When we talk about sanctions, that's something that, you know, for a large portion of this podcast audience being congressional staffers, that's something that a lot of times Congress is called upon to work on sanctions. Major question that comes up is, do these sanctions work? Um, you know, and what further sanctions can be done, especially if they end up being out of step with any European union sanctions, European unions in Russia's backyard too. And so they're much more affected by, uh, any, any retaliation that they may want to take either in the cyber, either in cyberspace or with pipelines or anything else. So what, good are the sanctions if we're not in step with the European Union and what further sanctions could we do?
2: Well, I I could offer some thoughts on this. So yes, ideally, uh, sanctions will be applied and tend to work best uh, when uh, they are done so in coalition. And that's been the story since 2014. There's much to say about the sanctions that have been uh, imposed on Russia uh, since that time. Uh, My view is that Russia worries about these sanctions more than it's willing to state publicly, uh, and that they have been and continue to impose cumulative uh, pain and distress uh, and growing costs uh, over time, which uh, Russia has only offered limited mitigating responses. Uh, Russia unwittingly betrays uh, its anxiety about sanctions uh, by uh, loudly threatening a rupture of relations with uh, Western countries if further sanctions are imposed. It it threatened a complete break with uh, the European Union last February, uh, and uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, made a similar threat towards the end of last year. So sanctions clearly matter to uh, the Kremlin. Now, I think that a a sanctions response to an even more severe and sustained uh, further invasion would have to aim to impose something closer to to shock and awe, to immediate and very, very severe consequences rather than steady and gradually accumulating costs. So there needs to be a difference of approach. And yes, again, it's best if uh, uh, the West works together in lockstep. However, it's worth remembering that in these sanctions matters, uh, it's the United States that wields the biggest uh, tools, the the most uh, significant weapons by virtue of the fact that uniquely is the dollar that has this reserve currency status and is essential for to have access to a dollar uh, clearing if you want to have access to the global uh, economy so uh, and those are sanctions that the United States can wield alone so potentially we're looking at much more serious blocking sanctions for example on on state banks and uh, going much further uh, on the on the question of sanctioning the the oligarch class Uh, who uh, benefit from and in turn help to sustain uh, the Putin regime. If there's a specific European sanction uh, that matters, uh, then it's the whole question of Nord Stream 2. Uh, So uh, watch Germany very closely on this. America, of course, can cause great difficulty to that pipeline as well, uh, but it it would be best, the ideal outcome would be, if in the worst case there's a a full-scale invasion. That the United States and Germany resolve their differences, share the view that this is now so awful that this pipeline, this long held criminal ambition, is finally killed.
0: Will, do you have anything you want to add to
1: that? No, I I agree with uh, Nigel. And I think I I would again emphasize the need to coordinate the sanctions. Uh, Comprehensive sanctions were introduced after the invasion of Crimea and the annexation of Crimea. Um, But they weren't as total as could have been, as they could have been. And Russia has largely adapted to at least some of the major sanctions that were imposed. Um, So that if we are indeed thinking about new sanctions, um, I do think that they have to be more comprehensive than the previous sanctions, which have been a nuisance for Russia and for Russian citizens but um, have not really, did not really lead to any sort of withdrawal or negotiation over Crimea or the Donbass. So I think the sanctions will be the main response from the United States. The, the beauty of sanctions is companies are always very wary of being caught up into a sanction, of violating sanctions. So you only need to impose a series of sanctions and Watch Western companies over enforce the interaction of these sanctions. And that is really the beauty of a sanctions regime. Um, but we, again, I, I agree with Nigel. It has to be a coordinated response. Um, and the fo- final point is that Europe has much greater trade relations with the Russian Federation, not only in terms of natural resources, gas and oil, but trade as well. So if we are indeed imposing sanctions, if the United States is leading sanctions, the sanctions regime, it is the European companies most likely that will be punished. So, again, a a coordination of the sanctions and by and by all the major
0: parties is essential. That seems like quite a risk for Russia to take. Why would they do that? Or is the goal really just to get us talking about Russia again? Well, I,
1: I think that they're taking the risk. And Nigel and I have discussed this as well. Uh, because even in light of a potential sanctions regime, uh, Vladimir Putin thinks that now is the time uh, to extract these concessions from the West, that he believes the Europeans are weak, he believes that the United States is not the great power that it was, and that when push comes to shove, the United States will not intervene Uh, to defend the integrity of of Ukraine. They could impose sanctions, but they definitely will not militarily intervene to defend Ukraine. So I think that Vladimir Putin, in in his calculus, uh, has decided that maybe now is the time to exert the maximum pressure to get the maximum concessions.
2: And... uh... Uh, why? Why now? Um, what has what has changed the the calculus? Why is it a, a, an opportunity? And what's driving the timing here? Partly, I think it's a matter of uh, concern uh, from Putin that uh, trends have been setting in that are pulling Ukraine inexorably away from Russian influence. They did not achieve what they hoped to from the Minsk II agreement uh, in 2015. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, that I think Russia hoped would be the basis of a, a long-term degree of influence, not only over the, uh, the occupied Donbass, uh, but over uh, Ukrainian politics as a whole. That, uh, that, that aspiration has, uh, has not been realized. In addition to that, we've seen over the past year, President Zelensky in Ukraine uh, begin to move against some of the, the cat's paws, so to speak, that the Kremlin has long had uh, involved in Ukrainian politics, notably the figure of Viktor Medvedchuk, who's personally close to Putin. In addition to that, the ever uh, the densening ties of of all kinds, economic and security, between Ukraine and uh, the EU, and Ukraine and the United States. So, the sense in which uh, things were not were not in stasis, as far as uh, Putin was concerned, they're actually drifting away. From his aspirations. In addition, he's getting older—seven years older than he was in 2014. He's thinking more keenly, perhaps, about legacies uh, uh, than uh, than he was before. He, of course, published this over five thousand word essay uh, in July. It's a remarkable thing for the busy leader of a major nuclear power to do—to devote such time to that. And uh, at the time, I thought, well, this isn't just a a, a a, a curiosity, a, a hobby, uh, an excursus into, into history, however uh, distorted uh, as we would see it, but, but a manifesto uh, of a kind. So uh, since, uh, since this mix of, of factors uh, has come together, we get the sense that of urgency uh, from Putin for all of these reasons. In addition to that, I think the sense of opportunity in uh, the uncertainties that Putin saw in American foreign policy after withdrawal from afghanistan and uh, nikolai patrushev the sec- security of uh, the secretary of the security council and one of the one of the hardliners who was very close to putin was very explicit in drawing this contrast just about a week after the fall of kabul he said uh, in terms uh, well uh, kiev better watch out because the same fate uh, may befall it uh, and uh, its american friends could uh, could disappear very quickly so it's that that balance of uh, factors Uh, that make Putin inclined to behave in riskier ways now, and to contemplate incurring the costs of uh, not only treasure, but blood as well. So costs of treasure in terms of the the pain of economic and financial sanctions, but the cost and blood in terms of the casualties that would inevitably follow, uh, particularly if uh, Russia were to seek to not just uh, occupy, but then to hold substantially new Uh, parts of Ukrainian territory.
0: I want to go back to something. Will, you had said that Putin sees this as an opportune moment to extract concessions from the West. Uh, Aside from being allowed a free hand to invade Ukraine, what kind of concessions is Russia looking for? I think he is looking
1: for uh, the guarantee that NATO will not expand to Ukraine and will not expand to Georgia, and uh, they would not replace any sort of troops or missiles on the territory of Ukraine. So that's the ultimatum that he has delivered. Now, that ultimatum, if if, if accepted by NATO, would mean the death of NATO. So he is, as, as Nigel has said, he is playing a bigger risk this time than in the past. Um, and there was a risk in Ukraine in in Crimea, but nevertheless, uh, Russia had a naval base in Crimea and it had troops in Crimea. They just they had the means, the military means to take Crimea and Ukraine could do nothing about it. So I think that um, Russia is trying to get these concessions. And just to add on what Nigel was saying previously, I think Putin believes that he is the only Russian leader who can extract these concessions, that there is no other Russian leader uh, on the horizon or in the past that would actually have the power and the confidence to put this ultimatum to the West. So I think that Putin thinks that now is the time because there isn't any other leader. In
0: Russia, who would take a similar risk? That is interesting. And, and you kind of touched a little bit to what I wanted to be my last question, which is what do things look like from here? If, if Putin gets what he wants, these concessions that Will has just told us about, uh, obviously that straps NATO. Um, and we, we see where the outcome would be there. But, Nigel, if Putin were to invade, russia were to invade ukraine what does ukraine look like after an invasion from russia
2: that's a horrifying prospect of course it would amount to the biggest clash of regular forces in europe since world war ii uh russian military and also the ukrainian military have reformed and developed substantially since 2014. this would be a very very nasty and and and, and grim struggle indeed clearly the numerical superiority of Russia. What we don't know yet is if it comes to an open conflict, what Russia's political military scenario would be. And there are many possibilities. You can think of a sliding scale. All of the possibilities are horrific, but at the least horrific end, it would be a matter of something like uh, a a significant, uh, locally overwhelming, but limited incursion uh, on the part of Russia that would aim to degrade a substantial proportion of Ukraine's forces quickly, uh, but then not hold territory beyond uh, the Donbass. Moving along the sliding scale of horror, you have uh, potentially uh, you know, a range of scenarios uh, of Russia seeking not just to uh, to invade, but then to hold what's fundamentally hostile territory, more hostile even than 2014, since the, the, the trauma of that first invasion uh, has helped ignite and consolidate Ukrainian nationalism. We, uh, polls suggest now that 72% of Ukrainian population view Russia as a, a hostile state. But so you could expect something like a, a form of partisan uh, warfare. And Ukraine is already preparing for that. But there are other scenarios we don't know, of course, and Russia is unlikely to do entirely what any of us expect. So the other instruments available to it, cyber attacks, for example, and we saw Uh, a a, a, a limited version of that just a few days ago. Troops, Russian troops potentially uh, from Belarus uh, also invading uh, as another vector uh, of attack. So there are many uh, scenarios, uh, all of them bad, of course, uh, in the worst case, uh, not just immediate destruction but prolonged and bitter and very nasty fighting. And that would transform Russia's Relationship with not just the West, but I think with much of the rest of the world. Uh, 2014 was a shock from which the by the Russian-Western relationship has never recovered. But uh, precipitating this fighting uh, in Europe on on any kind of scale would 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 for the long term and as as long as Putin or anyone like him is in power would entirely alienate uh, Russia from access to uh, any sort of constructive relationship with the West. So. For many, many reasons for all of us, the stakes here are very high.
0: It would seem to me that Vladimir Putin does not want that. Uh, Again, it goes back to the very beginning of our discussion. Hard to get in Putin's mind. But it would seem to me like he would rather see if he could get the concessions and if he can't pull back. It doesn't seem like the the sliding scale of horror that Nigel just talked about should be an option for any world leader, right? Uh, I, I think Nigel
1: has actually painted a realistic, deep te- picture of a sliding scale of violence and insurgency, and that that awaits Vladimir Putin if he thinks he can invade Ukraine and conquer and hold the territory. And in the Donbas uh, and the Minsk, if if the Donbass and Minsk too is any example, um. I think the real, uh, the, the first uh, priority uh, is to destabilize Ukraine, and it would be essentially to federalize Ukraine and give different regions um, the opportunity to basically veto legislation, and that's essentially is what the Minsk agreements would provide, and no country uh, who is defending its sovereignty and integrity can abide by that. So, one of the uh, another sl- uh, a potential variable for Putin is somehow to engage the United States in the Minsk II agreements and get them involved um, and try to convince Ukraine to become a more federal state. Uh, but again, I don't think that is the intention of the United States. And I think the political will and pressure from Congress would not allow President uh, Biden to kind of substitute into the Minsk process, um, because it would not benefit any American politician uh, if they were to uh, accept the conditions of the Russian Federation.
0: Well... This has been a a fascinating discussion in some ways basic, but in other ways going very deep. So I really appreciate that and and not making any assumptions here and really explaining everything. I really appreciate both uh, Will Pomeranz and Nigel Gould-Davies for joining me today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Need to Know podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure.